Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director of Lectures and Seminars. Thank you all for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just wanted to take the opportunity to remind everyone attending in person to please silence your cell phones. And for those watching online, you're welcome to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. This program is being broadcast and recorded. For future reference, if you would like to watch the video, you will be that will be available within 24 hours on the heritage.org website. Now it is my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program. He is the Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought in the B. Kenneth Simon Center here at the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Lee Edwards. Lee. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. It's a beautiful day in Washington, a great day to be alive. We have a very special guest. Washington, like Hollywood, is overflowing with actors. You have leading men and women like Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, uh, supporting actors like Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, you have rising stars like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Nikki Haley. And you have so-called bit players like Steve Hest, our guest speaker this afternoon. Now, Steve is best known as a senior fellow, now emeritus, at the Brookings Institution, which, as I seem to recall, is, is somewhere located at the other end of this avenue, uh, and for something like four decades, he was the go-to guy for journalists looking for a pithy quote about the current political situation. Lesser known is his role as a speechwriter for and advisor to presidents Eisenhower, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan. Note the ecumenical nature of these chief executives, attesting to Steve's ability to serve a variety of bosses. Steve S. is also one of the great storytellers in this city, perceptive and puckish. Uh, I offer as evidence the following excerpt from his delightful memoir, Bit Player, My Life with Presidents and, and Ideas. So here we are. Here's the story. Early in the morning of January 19th, 1990, the phone rang at Steve's home. It was a Reuters reporter telling Steve that the mayor of Washington, Marion Barry, had been arrested at the Vista Hotel on a drug charge. Well, according to Steve's wife, he, Steve said, if what you tell me is true, this is a sad day for Marion Barry 
and the people of the District of Columbia. The next morning, Steve had no recollection of this phone ringing. He had given a sound bite in his sleep. You could say that he did it while sound asleep. <laughs> okay, that's all right. I won't use that next time. <laughs> Steve Hess is the best-selling author of 17 books, including groundbreaking studies of the Washington Press Corps and the foreign press in the nation's capital. <clears throat> in his long and distinguished career, Steve has done it all. He's danced with Jackie Kennedy Onassis, lobbied for the Supreme Court nomination of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, his wife's first cousin, published a definitive history of America's political dynasties, served as a delegate to the United Nations General Assembly, edited the Republican Party's platform in 1976, turned down an invitation to be an ambassador to an African country, worked closely with the liberal polymath Donald Patrick Moynihan in the White House, and wrestled with that eternal question which faces all political observers, what is Richard Nixon really like? Steve Hess is, in fact, no bit player, but an Academy Award winner in Washington for some 60 years, and proving that bipartisanship is still possible in this politically divided city. I'm pleased as a fellow at the Heritage Foundation to welcome a fellow at the Brookings Institution to our discussion this afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving Steve Hess a warm heritage welcome. Lee, Lee hasn't said how we trailed each other for 60 years. That when he was in the Army in Germany in 1954, 56, and then I took over in 1956, 58, and he wrote a political biography of Ronald Reagan, and I wrote a political biography of, of Richard Nixon. We just seem to trail each other. Of course, uh, he's older than I am. This is my junior here to my left, yes. What, what's, your, what's your birth date? <clears throat> well, that's sort of privileged information. Let's, let's skip over that. <laughs> maybe you're not, maybe you're, maybe I'm not older than you are. Are <laughs> you than I? At any rate, uh, I, I, I'd like, there aren't many of us. Oh, let me say, of course, at least was kind enough to come. And I I was telling Lee that Ed and I worked together on the Republican platform of 1976. And uh, what a wonderful time we had. Uh, that was the, the platform uh, that Jerry Ford ran on. Uh, and then in 1980, when I did some stuff for the transition. And Ed Meese produced the, for Ronald Reagan the best transition uh, in American history. So I'm very pleased to have him. I, I care a great deal about him. Um, there aren't many left from the Eisenhower era. And I thought not many of you, I hope some of you remember him. Uh, but I'll start my story on August 16th. 1958, and I'm a on a troop ship coming back from Germany. I've been drafted in the Army for two years. I've risen in the ranks from private to private first class. 
I'm now being replaced by Elvis Presley. Almost true, actually, his unit was replacing my unit. Uh, and what I didn't know is I'm about, I'm tw I do know that I'm 25 years old and I'm unemployed. And virtually as I land, the President Eisenhower's speechwriter's name was um, Lawson, Arthur Lawson, uh, uh, announced that he was leaving. And what I didn't know was that his replacement would be a man named Malcolm Moose, who had been, I had been his assistant, he had been my, uh, my professor at Johns Hopkins. And uh, he asked me to, to join him on the White House staff. So some years later, my students would say, well, you know, how do you get to the White House staff? Said, my answer is always, be very nice to your professors. So uh, Mac uh, asked me to be on his staff, and it wasn't quite that simple because the chief of staff of the White House was a man named Sherman Adams, who was very tough uh, and about to be relieved, fired, because he had been involved in a scandal uh, with the an industrialist named Bernard uh, Goldfein. Uh, so he was going to be around only for another week, another month or so. But when Mac went to him and asked if he could have an assistant, Sherman Adams said, oh, no. But Mac, beside being a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins, was also the chairman of the Republican Party in Baltimore. He knew a thing or two about politics. So he went to the chairman of the Republican National Committee, Mead Alcorn, and said, well, you know, I'm coming aboard to, uh, uh, to write speeches for the president's midterm election, which was a tough, tough election. Uh, it would be nice if you paid for my, uh, for my new assistant. And uh, Ed Alkins said, okay. So on uh, August, no, September 4th, I went to, the, to meet Mead Alcorn. said, hi, Steve. Hi. And he said, um, how, much do you, how much would you like to receive? Nobody had ever ever asked me that question before. They didn't ask me when I became a private in the Army how much would I like to receive. And I said, I don't know why. I said $1,000 a month. I don't know why. He said, okay. And I thought to myself, oh, my. I must have asked for too little. So I said, well, there, there'll be other considerations. I had no idea what that meant. And he said, oh, of course, we'll, we'll give you an apartment. Oh, boy. I'm pretty good at this negotiating stuff. So I said, uh, I, I, I would like a contract for four months to carry me through to the new year. He said, okay. So um, I settled in in my new job in which it turned out that uh, $1,000 a month on a yearly basis uh, equaled in, 19, in 2020 uh, $104,000. <laughs> so there I was. Now uh, with an office in the... Um, in the executive, now the Eisenhower building, uh, I, I read recently a memoir by one of uh, Obama's speechwriters, how they were all crowded into little card, almost cardboard boxes, there were eight of them. Uh, but hey, I had an office that was so large that I could have a table that could seat 10. And whenever I'd have a meeting, I'd put a White House notepad on each place so that each person could steal the notepad. And then uh, I had a private another private office for my personal secretary. And I look out the window, and there was uh, the West Wing, a door on the side where I could see important people 
come in so they wouldn't have to see the press. I could see the president's helicopter land and he's holding his, his fedora in the wind. I could see the, uh, the pink and white tents where Mamie Eisenhower had, um, uh, had her luncheons. And hey, they talk about Wordsworth saying youth is really heaven. There I was every day. My boss, Malcolm Moose, his office was not in the West Wing, but in the East Wing. Uh, so that every day I had to walk right through the White House to get to his office, which meant I crossed that street, got in a little elevator that went up one floor, took about a minute or two. You know, one day I'm, I'm, uh, I see I'm, I'm there with the Secretary of, of State who's just returned from a meeting in Geneva. And what do I say to the Secretary? I say, Mr. Secretary, uh, did you have a good meeting? Yes. And out I go. I walk along a pathway uh, on the outside. If it's a nice day, sometimes I see the president hitting the golf ball. Uh, I don't know what, I'm not a golfer, so I ask the Secret Service man, hey, what, what kind of club is he using? How far is he hitting? And so forth. And I keep walking uh, past where there, uh, where there are stacks of film if the president had been watching a movie the night before. I always look over to see what he's watching. Today he's watching Gunfighters of, <coughs> of Abilene. He, he watched a lot of Western movies. He liked that. In fact, the, the projectionist told me that probably he watched 200 in the course he was there, the time he was there. <coughs> His favorite movie, according to Jim Haggerty, his press secretary, was called Angel in the Outfield. Uh, it was about the divine providence to a, a Pittsburgh Pirates manager at helps him out to win the pennant. Uh, and um, he, he, uh, he chose when, um, when McMillan was there, the, the British prime minister, and they went to Camp David, he chose the mouse that roared. Remember the mouse that roared, the film where some little country takes war, makes war on the United States because he knows when they lose, the United States will pay for all their economic worries. So that's what they were. So, um, the, the, there are several interesting things about that White House staff to be hard to, to, to put in the framework of today's White House staff. First of all, it was very small. In the eight years that Eisenhower was there, the sort of A-list, the people who, who had um, membership in the White House mess, excluding uh, the military aides, was 81. In, in Eight years, he only had 81 major aides. And um, there's something else of the 81. And we think about our life now and the questions about gender, the questions about race, and perhaps we don't put that in perspective. Of those 81, there were only three women and one African-American. It was a truly different world. In fact, that hit me with quite a passion on a day that should have been one of my happiest days in the White House. Um, we were so small that even some underling like me was invited to major dinners. And I had to go out and buy white tie. I, I found a store that was going out of business. I got the whole outfit for $37. and. Um, Kennedy came in, he turned it to black tie, but we dressed up in our white tie. Uh, Khrushchev came, they were all wearing business suits, we were wearing white tie. Uh, the president had Fred Waring's band uh, playing zippity doo -dah. 
the president in his memoir said that the, the Russians really liked this robust music, but of course I was sitting next to them and they were stony silent. The, uh, but then uh, in, 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 two, in the next year, two, I was invited to the state dinner for the, primate, for the um, heir apparent to the Japanese throne. Wow. And I realized after the fact why I was invited was that he was 26 years old and I was 26 years old. So the White House was making a point of inviting me and my wife. And it was a, when you come in, they tell you who your partners are gonna be at dinner. It, it was a wonderful program of Gershwin movie, of music. It would have uh, parts of uh, Porgy and Bess. It would be sung by um, Dunk, uh, the fellow who played the original Porgy. Uh, and uh, the soprano would be Camille Williams. Uh, and when my wife and I got there, we were given our partners, and that was Duncan and Camille. And we were thrilled. The most interesting people were going to be our guests. And then the social secretary called me aside and apologized to me for having put us with the black entertainers. This was 1960. Now, the White House staff um, was, was very different in terms, not only was it small, but it stayed in place. There was many of them that stayed all eight years. Many stayed six years. There was no churn as there is today. Uh, these, these people wanted to be with Eisenhower, and they were with Eisenhower. They were old, older than the people who were there for Nixon or, or Kennedy, uh, because there were a lot of people who had been CEOs of major corporations like General Foods. There were others who were presidents of, of major universities, Killiam of MIT, head of uh, University of North Carolina, John Gray. Uh, so needless to say, they were, they were older than, in fact, there was only one other person on that staff who was in their 20s. His name was Phil Arita. He was 28. I was 25. Uh, I never thought of Arita as old, as young anyway because of who he was. He, the minute he left the, the, the White House, he became a professor at, at uh, Harvard Law School and became the world's greatest expert on antitrust. So that was that was us. We were so they were they were older. Uh, and I think, and and very very nice to me. I think they must have thought of me as sort of a uh, a nephew. Uh, we would we would at the White House mess, which if any of you have been there, it's a room run by the Navy. It probably seats thirty five. In our time there, uh, we could all everybody who wanted to have lunch could eat, eat there at the same time. Eight years later, I came back under under President Nixon. And as a young staffer, I would not have had that privilege because by now it was so large that there were two seatings. So the young people, the young seating, the old second seat. Then by the time I left the Nixon administration, they not only had two seatings but two dining rooms, again, uh, arranged by, by seniority. So it was very different. I would come and have lunch, uh, sit at the staff table most of the time. Uh, I listened carefully to my colleagues. John Eisenhower, who was the president's 
son was on, on the staff, very, very nice and intelligent person. I always felt sort of sorry for him. If, he hadn't, if his name hadn't been Eisenhower and his dedication to his father, he would have been probably a very good history professor in a small uh, college. Uh, uh, who else? Uh, Robert Montgomery, a, a movie actor of some note at that time, uh, who came in whenever the president was on television uh, in order to direct uh, the, the presentation. Uh, there was uh, Andy Goodpaster, who subsequently became the head of, uh, of NATO. Uh, there was a person who, I don't, I don't know anybody remembers, Bryce Harlow, does that mean anything? Anybody ever heard of Bryce? Bryce Harlow <clears throat> was headed congressional relations for, for Eisenhower. Uh, and then when he left, uh, when Eisenhower left, he became really uh, his major uh, political thinker or advisor in Washington. Uh, and he was, he was at that time, and for 20 years, really the go-to man for Republican things in Washington, uh, the way that Bob Strauss probably was for, for the Democrats. This is important in my story. Of our speech writing team, as I say, I read the little book about Eisenhower's speech about uh, Obama's, and they had eight people. They seemed to be busy. We had two and a half, Mac Booze and myself. And then because he was in the East Wing, where also the offices of Mamie Eisenhower, the First Lady's offices, and also the military aides, uh, an assistant military uh, naval aide uh, knocked on his door and said uh, he would love to help him. His name was Ralph Williams. Uh, all of the military aides, by and large, had come from West Point or Annapolis. This one clearly had not. He had come from the University of Texas. He, whenever he had to wear his uniform, he always looked awkward in it. But he was a terrific writer, and he volunteered to help us. Since Mac had never been in the military, he was very happy to have a person who could help us on national security. So we were really a staff of two and a half, uh, and, uh, and we were a very happy staff. Uh, we didn't work very hard. Uh, the president uh, would give maybe one big speech a week, and a few things that we call uh, Rose Garden rubbish, but compared to, to what its speaker, uh, speakers uh, have to contend with today, it was very modest. In fact, uh, I even from time to time helped other people who needed a speech which probably made me very popular with the other members of the staff. And um, we w it would have been high, a crime of high treason if we ever told anybody who wrote anything. That's not the way we did it. Every word here is the president's, and the president only stands behind it. So I can tell at least one secret. It was Ralph Williams, our naval aide, who wrote the famous Eisenhower word ab words about industrial military complex. Um, but at any rate, we we uh, we had a we ha we we had a very good time. It was it was a very comfortable time after uh, after Eisenhower. I mean, after uh, uh, Sherman Adams left, the the chief of staff for the next two and a half years, all the time I was there, was a man named Jerry Persons, who was a major general. I'd handled uh, had handled congressional relations of the Pentagon during World War Two. Uh, uh, and he was, a, unlike Sherman Adams, a sort of flinty New Englander, he was a very comfortable, charming Southerner. And he was so nice to me. He, he always he sent me little notes encouraging me. So 
in an environment that's never been terribly well known for its comfort, for its staff. <clears throat> I lived there for two and a half years uh, very comfortably doing marvelous things that I couldn't have done uh, uh, if the staff had been larger and I had not been part of it. Uh, and so this uh, Eisenhower actually was quite a good writer. He had been he had been a uh, he had been a speechwriter for Douglas MacArthur at one point, and because he had a sort of sloppiness in in, in press conferences, people thought he probably wasn't very good at it. But I and I kept one little uh, speech in my desk when people came and they told me they worried about it. I would show them all of his his markings up, uh, which often were far better uh, than what I had written for him in the past. Uh, but he was not, he did not have a, a major signature like Nixon had or Kennedy had. All he wanted to do was get it right, get it clear, and get it simple. <clears throat> um, so writing the, the memoir <clears throat> specifically gave me a chance to tell about some of the speeches that I particularly liked working on. And then the administration was over, and what would I do next? Um, I went to work for a very short time, six weeks or so, for, for a senator from California, uh, and found that I was much more geared uh, to, uh, to Article 2 than Article 1, uh, and that um, I spent all my time writing speeches in defense of some California industry or another. Tom Kiko, you'll remember. And, uh, and so uh, somebody came to me, this, this go-between on all things Republican, Bryce Harlow. And if the first miracle was Malcolm Moose suddenly telling me I should join the White House staff, it was uh, Malcolm Moose, it was uh, Bryce Harlow who could get me out of my my unease in the, in the, in the Senate, uh, and said to me, um, ah, this is what happened at that time. Now we see an ex-president, former president, leaving, and he gets all these wonderful things. He gets housing, he gets security, he gets secretaries, he gets drivers, and so forth and so on. At that time, the former president got none of that. Uh, when it came January 20th, 1961, noon, uh, President Eisenhower uh, got into his old Chrysler Imperial uh, and was driven 80 miles uh, to Gettysburg, his home. He was trailed by one Secret Service car. When the Secret Service reached Gettysburg, it made a U-turn and went back to Washington. And there was Eisenhower alone. It's the... Uh, Gettysburg College gave him some offices so they could write his memoirs. He had his personal secretary, of course. Uh, and Bryce Harlow said, um, the Republican National Committees concluded <clears throat> that if we're to keep Eisenhower alive politically for our purposes, somebody has to answer his mail. Would you be interested? Well, sure, it was better than writing the speeches about the Dayton nut industry in California. So I said, sure. We had no idea what that meant. So we worked out a piecework contract. Every letter that I sent, I think I got $3 for. I hired one of Mamie Eisenhower's secretaries who really did all the work. I designed a little book that had all the answers she would need. Uh, I rented some space in a Republican PR firm. And what happened was 
we were deluged with letters. Eisenhower was the most popular man in the world. Everybody wanted to write him. They wanted his autograph. They wanted a, a picture of him. They wanted to know what he thought about uh, uh, for whatever the debate uh, championship was that year, uh, how he felt about the 21-year-old vote, and so forth. And very easy to answer. And I was getting all of these, this money. I was pretty. Had one other client of sorts. Harlow said to me, also, look after the needs of Nixon. Nixon has gone out to California. He's just lost the presidency. Uh, he's joined uh, a law firm. Uh, he's, the fun, he's the rainmaker for a big California, Los Angeles law firm. Has nobody in Washington. And um, he may need some help. Now, what was interesting here was there I was on Eisenhower's staff small staff. I didn't know Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon didn't have an office in the White House. That didn't happen until Walter Mondale, Carter's man, had that. Eisenhower actually thought of him, as the Constitution says, he was the chairman of the president of the Senate, as a member of the, of the uh, legislative branch. He even says in his, in his memoirs uh, that uh, everything that... Uh, that he asked him to do, he, uh, Nixon, as vice president, volunteered to do. He did not. And so I saw very little. I, he, made, he came over for cabinet meetings, national security, but he was not a presence in the, in the White House. Okay, he now arrives in 1961 in Washington. What have I done? Uh, I've, I've, I've got all this money coming in, doing very little work for it. Two clients, in a sense, Eisenhower and Nixon. So I think, well, maybe I'll, I'll, I, there's other things I can help them with. So I, th I, I had what, what amounted to a newsletter with two clients be telling them what was going on in Washington. Uh, Nixon really liked this, you know, because he had... This had been his life for 14 years. He wanted the gossip of Washington. The gossip of Los Angeles was not the gossip. He, later he said to me, if I have to play golf one more time with Randy Scott, remember the cowboy movie star, I think I'll go out of my mind. So the gossip <clears throat> worked out well. The other thing I did for these two clients was whenever I would see a little item about somebody I knew they knew, somebody who had won an award, somebody who's daughter was getting married, somebody uh, of, that, of that sort, I'd, ri I'd write uh, a little draft a note and send it either to Gettysburg or uh, to Los Angeles. Eisenhower loved it. Uh, and uh, all over town, I would get people who say, I got the most wonderful little note from the general. I should say Eisenhower, after he left the White House, didn't want to be the president anymore. He wanted to be called the general. Uh, I didn't hear anything from Nixon. And then Nixon arrived and at that time, a big law firm like his didn't even have a Washington office. See how different the world was? He took, he took a desk in Bill Rogers, his former attorney general's office, and he called me in. And he said to me, um, don't, um, don't bother to send me those, those little notes to send out. I don't really want to be remembered as a person who remembers people's birthday. I was stunned. I mean, this is... When you write in memoir, you remember things sort of. There are some things you remember exactly. This was exactly. Remember, in 1952, the ticket had been put together because Eisenhower was the non-politician, and now they had to add to the ticket a politician, which was, which was Nixon. 
But as I got to know both of these men, I learned that Eisenhower then had perfect political instincts every time it worked out. And Nixon actually did not. Now, I don't know what he meant when he said that to me, but it reflected something that surprised me. And at this point, a lot of things about Nixon, who I didn't know, were surprising me. At any rate, uh, I agreed uh, uh, to write articles that he was committed to, even there, the Saturday Evening Post uh, and um, uh, Los Angeles Times Syndicate. Again, uh, we never had a contract. The Saturday Evening Post would give him a check, maybe $10,000. That was a lot of money for an article. If I had done the same article in my name, it would be $1,000. And he'd split it with me. And I, you know, I would say, Dick, you're, you're paying me too much. And he was embarrassed to say, oh, I, I just have to give it to the IRS. I was constantly being surprised by the image I thought I had, the sort of Herblock cartoon image of, of Richard Nixon. Uh, we got out to California. He should never have run for governor. It's a long story. I can tell you why he ultimately felt he had to. Um, but his campaign in the, in the primary was against a man named Joe Schell, who was a minority leader in the, in the legislature, who was an oil billionaire. Uh, and... Um, and the issue was the Robert the Birch Society, and Robert Welch, the, the head of it. This was a far, far right organization. Nixon obviously came out against it. Uh, Welch had been notorious for saying that Eisenhower was a dupe of the communist conspiracy, and I think this bothered Nixon a great deal. And Nixon said... Not only was he against it, but everybody who was for it, he was against, which included two very good conservative uh, House members from California who suddenly uh, were no longer supporting uh, uh, Richard Nixon. Now, I should say, by the way, subsequently, when Ronald Reagan ran for governor, he also opposed the John Birch Society, but he let everybody else do their own thing. You know, he was he was a different and a better politician. Uh, Nixon and so Nixon actually was going to win the, the nomination, but it, he could lose, losing a third of the vote was a serious thing for him. So we went through that campaign, in which, that, in which among other things, uh, I was in a hotel in in Oakland. Nixon, his secretary, Rosemary Wood, just the three of us. And we watched John Kennedy deliver his speech on the Cuban Missile Crisis, the important, most important speech of his, of, his, of his presidency. And the speech was over, and Nixon turned to me and said, well, I just lost the election. I was, I was trying to, what's this got to do with you? And he said, nobody is going to be thinking about elections in California after this. This, this totally focuses the attention of the United States. Of course, he was right. Uh, he lost the election on um, uh, uh, election uh, night. He gave a. F he, I didn't join him. Uh, he had called me that day to say goodbye. I was going back to to, to Washington. Uh, he, uh, I said, Dick, uh, you still think you're going to lose the election? And he said. Uh, Yes, he said. 
but I'm never going to have to talk about crap like dope addiction again. The point was he was totally involved in international affairs. That's how his mind worked. The, the, the issues on the mind of Californians were not the issues that were on his mind, and there was a real disconnect uh, at, at that point. Uh, so he went back to... Um, I went back to, to Washington, uh, and eventually he came too. Uh, and... Um, should move far... How are we doing? I should move far ahead uh, on this. Uh, you get a sense of Nixon... Uh, the campaign in 68 uh, uh, had a, a real problem. His name was Spiro Agnew. And he said some outrageous things, uh, mostly out of ignorance. Uh, and so uh, Alderman Nixon's chief called me up and said, the, the president would like you had to be on, I mean, the, the candidate would like you to be on the plane uh, with Agnew. So I was. I traveled 60,000 miles with him. Um, typically, when, it, when I joined him, he had a speech. I don't know who had written for him, uh, but it was an interesting speech about population dispersal. Uh, so we are now flying from Dallas to Cheyenne. It's at night, and I walk up to sit next to him. Look out the window. There's a light over there. There's another light. And I say, Governor, um, I don't think this is a good place for the population dispersal speech. Nods. Uh, we go into Cheyenne, the, the school auditorium. It is exactly the way a campaign rally should be. Uh, and we visualize it. Pres Vice presidential to candidate to be gets up and gives the population dispersal speech. I don't know if there was a gasp uh, but there could have been. And get back to, I didn't know, I had just been with him for a week. I didn't know who I was traveling with. And his aide came and asked me to go to his room in the hotel. And he's sitting there, he dejected. He's got papers all over the floor. He looks up and he said, Steve, I picked up the wrong speech. Well, I'm sorry for him. But hey, you could have had lived. You know how to give a speech. And at that point, our paths crossed. He couldn't fire me. I wasn't going to quit. So we went ahead together. I wrote a speech for him every day. He delivered something else every day. And the election is over. <clears throat> and now the new president uh, is, a, is to go into office. And, and uh, I'm owed something, I think. I don't know what it is. I haven't asked for anything. I really didn't want to go back to the White House. Um, a strange thing happened. He asked uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, big Harvard liberal, to be his, his domestic advisor in the White House. And um, he's a very good friend of mine. Uh, and uh, so he asked me to go to, uh, uh, to, to be his assistant. And I really couldn't resist. First of all, it would be nothing as much fun as working with Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And second, I thought he needed me. He, did, he had voted against this man. He didn't know. I was the only Republican he knew. And he, so uh, we went to the White House, and we had a fascinating experience. Because the, the, the president, Nixon, did something very strange. Virtually on the day before he took office, he called in Arthur Burns, 
famous economist, professor at Columbia, and gives him virtually the same job that he had already given Pat Moynihan. At a somewhat higher status, one was in the cabinet, one was not in the cabinet, by, by rank. And, and I watched for that year something that was quite glorious. It doesn't really happen very often. He had two brilliant Ivy League professors, Moynihan of, of, of Harvard, Burns uh, at Columbia, a big liberal and a big uh, conservative, uh, fighting over the most important piece of domestic legislation to be considered. It's called the Family Assistance Plan. It was exactly what Moynihan wanted to give money to women with children. It was exactly what uh, Burns didn't want because it was hugely expensive. And they fought it out before the president. This is, this is what you really dream of. The strange thing happened. We, that's another book I wrote, not this one. Moynihan won, partly with charm and other things, partly because somehow he reminded Nixon of what it was like when he was poor and his father had a store, and poor people came to get food. And somehow that seemed to click on him. At any rate, um, when Moynihan left and they changed the nature of the White House, what they eventually did was ask me to become the, the national chairman of something called the White House Conference on Children and Youth, which I ultimately had to break up into children's conference. Horrible job. Can you imagine being the national chairman of the White House Conference on Youth during the Vietnam War? Well, it was quite hell. We lived through that. And eventually in 19... They, uh, when I left that, um, there's Nixon tapes. They really withhold them. And, and I said, um, God, what did we make a mistake with Hess? Or can we get rid of Hess? It's, sort of, it's all in the book. It's sort of fun to read back and see what they're busy telling them how awful I am. And yet, it, Nixon is different. There are three tapes uh, that they find, that I, I get uh, because this happens. The tapes were started in 1971. Uh, and the first one was a vicious attack on me by Richard Nixon, my friend. The second was, you know, I think I was wrong. And the third, the conversation with Kissinger was, um, you know, Hess did a good job. That was, that was, was, was Nixon. Uh, but let me tell you, years and years later, when I read what he was saying about me, it, it still hurt. Okay, he, uh, he has his own problems. It's called Watergate. And I am now at the Brookings Institution. Uh, and I've been there January 72. Uh, Watergate, we're now talking about the spring. And I know these people. Many of them are friends. Uh, and I, I don't understand it. And in fact, the question is, what did Richard Nixon know? And I can't believe that he knew about Watergate. And I even gave a speech at, at uh, Harvard Business School with all the reasons. I think there were six reasons why the president of the United States would never have known about a break-in to the Democratic National Committee. Well, the Irving Committee hearings, the Senate Committee starts. Uh, public television sets it up to watch it constantly. They have they hire Robin McNeil and Jim Lair as the anchors. They'll have one person who's the lawyer who will handle the legal things, and I will sit on the other side and handle the political things. So I'm watching these hearings. 
day after day, and it's the sort of thing you where you watch them every minute. Then, then there's a break while they take a vote, and you've got to be talking for the next twenty minutes, and you go back. And and eventually, we find out that he had tapes, and eventually we find out what's on the tapes, and eventually we find out that he knew uh, about this break-in. And I'm, uh, I'm watching this day after day, and I'm really getting nightmares. I'm very, very upset about this. And I, I literally actually resign on the air and say, I can't go back tomorrow. By the way, there's a little film that Brookings has made. Uh, you can get it on the Brookings website. Or if you go into Amazon Books, there's a, con a, a condensed version of it, which tells about me on the air talking about, about uh, Watergate. Um, and, I, and I'm seeing all these people I know caught in this Nixonian web and going to prison. And it worries me, and I try to deconstruct that as best I can. Of course, many of these people have written their, their memoirs or had it ghosted. And they're also, they're very different. Haldeman and a couple others are the true believers. They've been with Nixon forever. Nixon does it. It's, it's appropriate. It's right. And they'll go along. In fact, Haldeman's wife writes a very moving memoir herself and talks about how she, she's almost lost her husband to Richard Nixon. So that was one type, the true believers. Another type, at least one of them, was Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a totally ruthless character. The idea of his subsequently changing, getting religion, is another story. But even in his book about getting religion, you can see other examples of the things he did. And he had clearly hooked himself onto Nixon. Uh, and that was it turned out to be quite a dangerous thing to have somebody like that next, next to Richard Nixon uh, performing dirty tricks. Uh, then there, were, um, there was another group, uh, Jeb Magruder, who had gone to the to the Nixon reelect? Uh, and years later, I was sitting in a club in in Washington, and he came in, and he made a beeline for me, and he said, um, "Next time you write about me, don't say I'm immoral; just say I'm stupid." Okay, he's stupid. Next would be a per Eagle Crow, Bud Crow. So these were young people. Young Crow was a a lawyer, a young lawyer. Uh, and he was actually in charge of what became the Nixon plumbers, the people who actually went into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to find papers. And he did it because the commander-in-chief told him to do it. Of course you do it. And he went to prison, and he's written a very moving little book. I think it's called Integrity. And he talks about coming back to see Richard Nixon, who is now in San Clemente, to tell Richard Nixon that he was proud to have worked for him, that he doesn't regret what he did for him. And Nixon said, I've never done anything wrong. And that was that. Destroyed Croak, he writes in this book. So uh, the, the, that part of the book, there's a lot of other books, I, I cannot... I cannot figure out, sort out my relations with Richard Nixon. They are deeply disturbing. Other people are, are moving on from Watergate. 
I can't do it. Nixon, Nick, uh, Moynihan says to me, well, you've got to make your peace. There's, there's got to be closure. We'll go up to, to New Jersey and have lunch with him. I said, okay, Pat, call, set, call him. We'll have lunch with him. But before that happens, Nixon writes his book, memoir, RN, it's called, and he admits nothing. So I said, no, I'm not going up to lunch for him. And um, Nixon forgives me, if you will, or at least he sends me a book. He's written a lot of autographed. And that night, I'm at the arena stage. I noticed during the intermission, Bill and Elaine Sapphire, Bill Sapphire is one of his speechwriters, important speechwriters, are there. So we gather, and I say, hey, uh, Sapphires, isn't this strange? RN sent me a book today. What does it mean? And Elaine says, it means he's forgiven you. But I was never able to forgive him. And in a sense, the political part of my book ends that. That's my problem. Maybe not Richard Nixon's problem. Um, and we went on to, uh, to the Brookings Institution, which was not at all happy about my being on television constantly talking about Watergate. Uh, Kermit Gordon, uh, the president, uh, has a public relations staff of one, and he's not very busy. Uh, and there are, there, we're not supposed to be sitting in green rooms and so forth. So in a sense, I guess what happened changed the nature of think tanks. Brookings responded ultimately to that. We, we also responded to the Heritage Foundation, which was ahead of us uh, in, in how it dealt with the press. Um, and I did, as you point out, have a lot of quotes. Book, the, the, the book, what do you, you check in, in the uh, internet? Stephen has quotes and thousands and thousands of quotes, and they, they're out of context. And why am I doing all this thing? And I conclude that the only quote that I really still want to live with that I said to somebody in Minnesota was, it doesn't make any difference what you say, what you wear. It doesn't make any difference what you wear on radio or what you say on television. And I'll stop there. <laughs> mm. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Uh, uh, wow. Wow. Uh, okay. Your turn out there. But before we go any farther, don't forget, we're here to sell books. Oh, to sell books. That's what we're here for, not to listen to Steve being his engaging self, but to sell books. But let's have some questions from the, from the audience. You, you want to serve? <laughs> we got it. Tell me who, who you are, too, so I can... Hi, uh, Bruce Guthrie. Bruce, all right. <clears throat> I, I take it you don't have a, uh, um, uh, whatever, the uh, tattoo of Richard Nixon on your back. <laughs> um, did you keep up, you, you said you worked with Eisenhower to mm -hmm. do letters. Yeah. Did you keep up with him after... Six, I don't, he died well, in what, I mean, that was up to the t point that that I went to work for, for, for Nixon, and then Eisenhower died shortly after. Unlike not going to Nixon's funeral, I did go to Eisenhower's funeral. And again, remember, I was two generations removed 
from Dwight Eisenhower. And if you look at Dwight Eisenhower, just even look at the ages of his cabinet, Eisenhower was comfortable with people within a 10-year radi age radius. So I cannot claim that I, we were buddies on the White House staff. As I wrote all of his mail and all of that stuff, ultimately I, I changed from being a Mr. Hess to Steve. Uh, but um, I, uh, I can't really talk about keeping up with him. I did write some speeches as he needed it. Uh, when he was in retirement, he was sick, and, and uh, it was a limited sort of thing. Uh, I, I've stayed up with his children, grandchildren, uh, and so forth. Um, they, they were not too happy with me because I was not too happy with his memoirs. Presidential memoirs are usually pretty dull things, and they try to shove it, they can everything into it. But other than that, uh, we got on fine. Susan Eisenhower, who I know well, his granddaughter is irritated when I keep telling the story about tripping over her, her, uh, her toys as I went through the White House. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've yeah I've stayed as well as one would expect to stay uh, with with Eisenhower. <clears throat> Please, other questions? Um, yes, please. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Name. Hello, John Murdoch. John. And uh, we're just curious, with all your decades of experience, do you have any uh, quotes for us on the current White House? Oh, my. Um, well, uh, let me say, during, uh, when he was running for the nomination, I wrote one article, a column in the US, US, uh, USA, um, saying that he was not qualified to be president in the same way I was not qualified to, to build buildings and explain all of the things that you have to know that previous presidents, including Reagan, who had been governor of a large state for eight years, knew. Uh, and more than that, he didn't seem interested in learning about that. So that's where I felt. Then when he got the nomination, despite me, I wrote another column in Newsweek, I think. This was, this was directed to fellow Republicans in which the headline was something like, uh, I've, I, I worked for Eisenhower, Nixon, uh, Ford, Reagan, but I'm not going to vote for, for this man. He, he, he simply, to me, beside not being qualified from my first, he wasn't a Republican from my second. Okay, um, then we come to inauguration day, and I'd always been asked to be in somebody's TV studio to watch the inauguration address and comment on it. In fact, I loved that. It was my favorite speech. It was the moment in which somebody stops, tries to stop being a candidate and takes on the mantle of the presidency. And there were some great inaugural speeches from Lincoln, from, from Jack Kennedy, from Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm sitting there waiting and I'm really sort of shocked. Uh, this is a campaign speech writ large. Uh, this is America first, America first. 
And I said to myself at that point, I, I'm going to take a leave of absence. I'm not going to spend the next year, two years, just talking about, about the president who I'm going to have problems with. So what do I do? And at that point, people said, well, why don't you write a memoir? So really, that's the reason I wrote a memoir. Well, I guess I'm now free again. And I should say worried again, really worried. I'm worried about a person. Look, the third year, I, I wrote a book in which called Organizing the Presidency, in which the first chapter is the collective presidency. And based in part by the fact that I had been on two White House staffs, once at the beginning of the administration and once at the end, and I could see differences. And this chapter was what the presidency looks to the president in year one, in year two, in year three, and year four. Year three is the tough year for any president. Year three is the year you've just gone through a midterm election and you've probably had a hard time. Not necessarily as hard as this time, but a hard time. Year three is the year in which you look around at your cabinet and you're irritated. You don't like those people really very much. Why did you make that, that mistake or this mistake? Year three is the year that you see your White House staff starting to, to, to be in a circle and shooting each, at each other. All of these things are happening in all administrations to different degrees. And this one, I don't have to tell you how severe it is. And in this administration, and in year three for this administration, it's quite clear that the Democratic House is going to give him a very hard time. It's already started. It's not going to be easy stuff at all. And it's going to be things that he cares the most about, like his taxes, maybe his family. And Mueller is going to report something. And Mueller's a smart guy. He's a former FBI director appointed by a Republican, a Republican. And uh, we already see enough indications of obstruction of justice, but we don't know beyond that. All of these, these things are going to ascend on this man, who I think into, uh, psychologically is very frail for, very, for various reasons, and I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't. How will he take that? Well, in many ways it doesn't make too much difference, but again, he's a man who's recently... Uh, chief of his secretary of defense has left because he can't deal with him. I worry a great deal of all the things that could happen if there's a world crisis, a serious crisis in some way, how he might instantly respond. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, you know. So what can I tell you? I look forward, perhaps in a flighting, perhaps in a fantasy, to President Mike Pence. I really do. I'm worried. I know I speak to a lot of people who think otherwise. And I don't speak for anybody but myself. Hmm. Somebody else. Yes, uh, please. Al Milliken, AM Media. Yes, Anything more to say about um, Richard Nixon, his relationship or opinion about the Brookings Institution and and maybe any other think tanks? <clears throat> about Nixon? Well, as you remember, Nixon people tried to break into the Brookings Institution. It's quite a silly thing. They thought Brookings had some papers on, on Vietnam. Uh, and so uh, he... Um, Brookings... Uh, 
I've been very comfortable at the Brookings Institution. I understand uh, that it is, if you set these all up, line them up, sort of slightly left of center. But left of center as K to J or something. It's, it, it really isn't A. It, you know, we have some, uh, I'm not the only person who comes out of a Republican background. And in fact, there's one of us who's in, uh, who's in the National Security Council in an important position uh, for, for, for Trump. Uh, so I don't feel uncomfortable that way. Uh, but again, and I, I'm, I'm an emeritus. I, I don't comment on everything. I thought, I thought it probably was something I should comment on here because I understand uh, that I'm coming to, uh, to, to heritage. Um, Brooklyn, Brookings, as, I'm, as I know from, from Lee's experience as in heritage, is a wonderful place. Not only a wonderful place to have been in, but a wonderful place to retire from. I have an office. I don't have a system, but I have an intern I can call on. I know that my friends at Princeton, for example, when they retire, they got three years and then they're out. That, that real estate is too expensive. They can't keep you there. They got to move out and put somebody else in. But I'm there. Uh, I'm there, I think, for life. Uh, I, uh, I go down to lunch if I choose to, the cafeteria, and I'm sitting down, and there's Ben Bernanke sitting there. I can't talk to the Federal Reserve with them, but I could talk baseball, pretty good baseball fan, and on and on. These are people who are interesting people uh, that I can sit down and, and, and have lunch with. So I'm, I'm very grateful uh, to Brookies. I haven't been on its payroll since 2004. I then spent five years as a professor as well at, at George Washington University. Uh, I'm, I think, um, the university is a fierce, a much fiercer place than a think tank. Those, those people had real, had real strong feelings about each other in, in a university, and so that uh, I mean, began to think that every, every uh, academic novel I read was probably true. Um, but um, at Brookings, you know, I really like my colleagues, uh, and if I don't. I don't have to have lunch with them. <laughs> yes, any other questions out there? Anything from our young interns, particularly here? Anything? No? No? You're trying to recollect and absorb all that this very, very wise and very experienced man. Uh, we're privileged that he's been here, that he's joined us, tell us wonderful stories. But there are other great stories in this, bit player, and uh, I believe there are books out there for, for purchase and for autographing. And please join me in thanking Steve for being with us today. <laughs>